0: We pray. From Psalm 119, Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law, and observe it with our whole heart. Lead me, lead us in the paths of your commandments, for we delight in it. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that we dread for your rules are good. Behold, we long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give us life, amen. Was there music coming? There was, I heard it off. Was it in the sanctuary too during the service? Uh,
1: yeah, it was oh. on the power
0: Got it, okay. Because I, you know, I, I could hear something, I'm like, oh, I'm losing my mind. <laughs> but, but you can't lose something you've already lost. So, so a little bit of uh, 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 prolegomena as we get started here, just a little bit of uh, um, retracing our steps. Uh, last week we focused on uh, the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that comes by faith. And the uh, the technical term that we would use for that is that it is imputed. It is something that is spoken to us. This is the image of the umpire calling safe, whether or not you know the eyes tell us that you were safe or out. Um, and it says that this is the power of God for salvation, which is... Revealed to us and that word revealed is very important Um, It's something that is made known to us and what's about to happen is that there's something else That is being revealed that is going to be in contrast with the righteousness of God now it says that this is the power of God for salvation and uh, the, the word power in Greek is the word dynamis, where we get our word dynamite. And uh, one of the images that sometimes gets used with this verse is uh, uh, like an explosion. That Jesus coming and his death and his resurrection is like an explosion. And then what what do you do with that? And the danger is that we treat that event kind of like a post-mortem. You look back and you say, oh, here's what happened, and here's what happened, and oh, look at this. You know, and you kind of leave it all in the past. But when we say that the, uh, the power of God is for salvation, the word "dynamis" is not just dynamite, it's also dynamic, meaning that it continues to have power and to work, and it is an action that is still happening. And I think that as we read the scriptures, this is one of the things that's very important for us to keep in mind. That we're not just talking about something that happened long ago. Paul is talking about life today. The things that he's talking about continue to be at work in the world. Jesus Jesus died, he rose, he ascended into heaven. And part of the reason that he ascended into heaven is that He could be present for us in all places and in all times at once. He gives us His Spirit to bind us together. His Spirit, we experience that as a local experience, you know, so in our personal lives, but it's also He works through the whole world. You know, so I'm, I'm kind of imagining from Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit hovered over the waters of the deep. Well, the Spirit is still kind of hovering over this world and at work in this world to call, gather, and enlighten people, to draw people to faith in Jesus. So I don't want this to be something where we just kind of look at something that happened in the past. This is something that's at work in us now. And as Paul begins to compare God's righteousness, um, as Paul begins the letter, he's going to, to compare Paul's right, God's righteousness with another revelation. And this time he's going to talk about God's wrath. Question? Yes. If you're using the term righteousness so much, could you what's a sort of a better word or sort of
1: synonym that I can kind of um, so that's a stick in my mind that doesn't for some reason. Rightness. And so, what's
0: your take? The word righteousness is related to the word justice, which is related to the word justification. Uh, and so I like sometimes to use that image of justification, uh, particularly in this context. Justice. Um, all right. So righteousness is everything that God says is right. Okay? And so we could say, though, that's justice. It's all the things that are done right in the world. But when we start talking about it being imputed to us, we usually talk about justification. And the image that I like to use when I talk about justification is Microsoft Word. In Microsoft Word, there are three buttons uh, up on uh, on the bar that you can either click the first one and it will take everything and make the left edge straight. That's called left justification. You can center it, center justification, or right justification. And so when I think about this idea of righteousness and justification, there is, to use from the Minor Prophets, a plumb line. There is a standard that, that is out there, God's law. This is one of the reasons that we—I'm uh, using Psalm 119 uh, as our opening prayer, because in Psalm 119 the psalmist is constantly coming back to God's word. He calls it His precepts, calls it His law, calls it uh, His testimonies. I love that word testimonies because it's—it's it's the whole story of everything that God has done, and so it's being lined up to a concept that we're gonna talk about a bit today, uh, God's truth. So everything that, that is right about God, which is everything, um, that's righteousness. And that may or may not be displayed in our lives, in our actions. And there are different ways uh, of, uh, uh, different contexts, different, different measuring sticks that, uh, that we might use. So there's God's righteousness, which is keeping his law perfectly. There's God's righteousness in the sense that he makes us right with himself. There's also what we would call civic righteousness, what is right in the world, what the world then says this is what's right or what's wrong. And we find ourselves lining up in those different categories. Does that help? No. Righteousness is true. Yeah, a lot of these comp, lot, a lot of these ideas, they, they're complex, uh, complex in the sense that um, they touch other things, and they they, they work in other aspects. Sherry.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, so one of the words that sometimes I think of is the word virtue, Yes. because virtue includes goodness and truth and beauty and and all of these things that are just wonderful. Yes. You know, and and righteousness kind of encapsulates all of that. Like when you, you said about the fear of the Lord. Righteous, righteousness also has an awesome, truly an awesome quality that we that we can't it it can encompass us. This is we're dealing with things that are bigger than ourselves here. and, uh, And so when we come into God's presence, there's a sense of awe because we can't get our arms completely around that, even though it is going to completely enfold us. So shall we dive into the text? Romans 1. My goal for today, whether or not we would achieve it, is to finish Romans 1. I, I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not upset at all where we are in the book. I, uh, I, I was really glad we did two verses last week. Those are two very important verses. I, I think we can cover a little bit more today, we'll see. Uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God with images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. So the righteousness of God has been presented to us, and, and now to get at what that righteousness is, um, Paul is going to go to speak to kind its opposite. And he's going to talk about the wrath of God. Um, the wrath of God, one of the uh, um, glossaries I was looking at when I was translating, uh, lexicons, excuse me, when I was translating, um, defined this word wrath as a vigorous upsurge of one's nature against, someone or something i just i kind of find that you know this vigorous upsurge you know um that uh, that there is something that causes us to uh, just viscerally respond in a negative way to something and that's the wrath of god um and when god has that um there is, uh, there, there, there's gonna be some consequences. Uh, when this happened, you know, when we were growing up and our parents became wrathful with us because of our behavior, you know, we knew that there was a, a division in our relationship with them. There was a, a wedge that was put between us, at least for that moment, right? Well, It's the same kind of idea. I think this is one of the really important uh, reasons that Jesus teaches us to call God Father. Because we begin to have some images to tie to our relationship with God uh, that we can understand. But this, this idea of the wrath of God, I wanna take a look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And uh, I, I wanna focus in on, on verses 15 through 22 to get at this. Um, but uh, Deuteronomy is one sermon. You know, thirty, what is it, thirty-three chapters, thirty-four chapters, one sermon. Um, I will hear no complaints about the uh, sermon being too long today, Um, but uh, that's just a little foretaste of the feast to come for for those who did not attend the early service. Um, But uh, um, one very long sermon because Moses knows he's going to die. And uh, God, God told them this. Uh, he's not going to enter into the Promised Land. You're gonna go up on this mountain, and that's gonna be the end. And that's, that's exactly what happened for Moses. And at the end of the book here, he he, he does this poem. Uh, I'm not sure if this is, it says he spoke the words of this song. You know, so I don't know if he actually sung it or spoke it or, you know, because, the word speak in Hebrew is really to make sound. So I, I could see where it could be either one. But he, he's kind of giving his, his, his farewell to the people. And in verse 15, well, starting in the beginning, he, he's talking about God's salvation. He's talking about Israel's relationship with God. And then in verse 15, he says, but Jeshurun grew fat. Jeshurun is a diminutive of Israel, okay? Um, The word Israel is is Yisrael, Yishron. It's it's like calling Richard Ricky, okay? Um, So Jeshuan grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation for a fire is kindled by my anger and it burns up the and it burns to the depths of sheol devours the earth and in its increase and sets its fi- sets on fire the foundation of the mountains it's a picture of god's wrath it's being on the receiving end of his anger and notice what you know, is really at the heart of this, it's, it's worship of other gods. And God's wrath is really largely about the breaking of this relationship that we have with him where he is our God and we are his people. And, and, and so these images of jealousy and, and all of these things, they're part of this idea of his, his wrath, he does not, he does not share his people with others. Uh, read Jeremiah sometime. I love Jeremiah. You know, the weeping prophet, they call him. And he, uh, God in Jeremiah, uh, uses this imagery of marriage and unfaithfulness in it. And the language becomes rather graphic sometimes. You know, talking about whoring around with the nations going after other gods. This, this is the thing that, that really gets God's attention and draws out His anger. This is what's part of uh, uh, the close of the commandments. Uh, in, there are two places in the Old Testament that record the commandments for us. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter five is the other. Uh, Deuteronomy literally means second law. It's the second place that the 10 commandments are recorded for us. And maybe you remember memorizing this when you were in confirmation class. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the Father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Happy thoughts for an eighth grader. What we don't always recognize is that this passage comes to us as part of the whole part of the chapter talking about, you shall have no other gods before me. And so the wrath of God is very much rooted in this rejection of God as God. It's going back to the garden and saying, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. You will become the authority in your own life. You will become the one that decides good and evil. The problem is we all have this part of us that desires to worship something. And we're generally not crass enough to really be honest to say, the thing that I wanna worship is me. (laughs) And so we find these other things that we can put in that place that we can manipulate that we can seek to use to our advantage. Images of mortal man. Zeus, Poseidon, Hermes. Everybody's favorite pagan god. Thor, the god of thunder. You know, uh, birds and, and animals and, and creeping things. Paul saying th- this is the source of, of the wrath, that you have put something else in my place in your life. Now, it says that this wrath is revealed. Why why does the wrath of God need to be revealed? Any thoughts about that? Sure. Well,
1: because the forces around us in our culture are very, very strong. There's nothing wrong with a clean brain. Yeah, right? Through our senses, we experience life, and especially in postmodern culture, through all this media bombardment that kind of governs the way we operate. And so God has to reveal something that will counterbalance that and hit us in the face. It's much more powerful than what we're absorbing naturally, where we turn.
0: Yeah, and so, what Sharon is describing here that, you know, there, there is this culture that pushes in on us. And I would remind us that, you know, as we studied this in the, in the catechism, you know, there are three enemies that we face. The devil, the world, and our sinful nature. You know, the world is not neutral. The world is actually a, a hostile place. I'm not talking about creation when I say the world although creation itself can be rather hostile, you know, uh, hurricanes and you know wild animals and these kinds of things. But when I say the world, I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about, the, in a sense, the kingdom, we've been talking about the kingdom of God in our worship services. The kingdom of the world is where the devil is the ruler and those thoughts and those ideas, that, that logic is at work. And the kingdom of God has a different logic and a different order to it. And these things are in opposition, and they have been ever since the fall into sin, or the upward reach into sin, however you want to look into that. And so as God takes a a peculiar people for himself, the Israelites, he brings them out of slavery into, slavery in Egypt, into the promised land. And even as they're doing this, They're finding themselves uh, tempted by the world. In in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses eight and nine, um, God's talking about worship and how people are to worship him. And he starts giving some statutes here about how that should work. And in eight and nine, He recognizes they're going into a different land. He says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. He's recognizing that there's going to be something inside of them that's going to lead them to worship that has led them to worship differently than what God has called them to do. And I think that that verse 9 is actually very important for us today when it says you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God has given you. Because we have been promised rest and inheritance as well, haven't we? And you ain't there yet. This is, you know... My new favorite word, right? Penultimate. I keep using it because I dig it. Um, we're living in a penultimate world. This isn't it. There's something else that's coming. Something better. That's what we're living for, even as we actually live in this world. And those things are going to be in conflict. Uh, and. and <laughs> Sometimes you have to be knocked upside the head to realize that what I'm doing is not aligned with the ultimate, but I'm living in the penultimate experience. Uh, Another example of this from the Old Testament, uh, Judges uh, chapter 21, verse 25. I think this is, yeah, this is the last verse of the whole book. It ends on this ever so helpful note, hopeful note. In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Take that to Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the paths of your commandments. It's a recognition that... God is always at work in us to help us to see these things and, and to help us to live in them. Actually, help isn't even the right word. You know, it, it's empower or make us alive to these things. In uh, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And we all have this in us that, that we want to determine what is right in our own eyes. Uh, chapter 21, uh, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. There is, there is a blindness that is in us. Um, you know, one of, my, one of the parts of my job is I edit the... Um, um, the Bulletin, uh, so for entertainment's sake you, you can look at all the things that I miss because I regularly do um, and usually when I edit other people's stuff I, I don't do too badly but when I edit my own stuff oh it's awful yeah, so when I, when I when I wrote my thesis I had to go through that and edit it I actually paid somebody to edit it and I went through it again, and I found more stuff that needed to be edited, and then I published it, and then I was reading it, and I found things that needed to be edited. I was horrified, but I was blind to this in myself, and I think that's a good image of how we are, and so we need people, we need God, actually, to reveal reality to us that there is a wrath that is at work in us. I love this passage from Jeremiah 17, verse nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This, This is an image of who we are as sinful people. So the world says, follow your heart, right? And God through Jeremiah says, your heart is desperately sick, don't follow it. And then one more passage on, on this front. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Just for the record, it, it, in a different class, I would ask other people to read these things, but for the sake of the recording. That's one of the reasons I'm reading all of these. Um, so I'm sorry if that's you know, boring or whatever. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is a picture of who we are without the Spirit of God working in us. We do not accept that God's wrath is upon us. We don't accept uh, the revelation of, of God's grace and forgiveness and salvation that counteracts that wrath. That is in, stands in stark contrast to it, this righteousness of God. This is all gifts from the Spirit that we can receive these things. It says we are not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And in this world, when we say that something is spiritually understood, that's almost tantamount to saying it isn't real. So, yeah, it has to be made known to us. It has to be revealed. So it's revealed against ungodliness. Um, Ungodliness, uh, the word that's translated there is, uh, it's a disregard for religious belief and practice. I think sometimes when we think of ungodliness, we think of being naughty. It's the bad things that we do. That's ungodly. Uh, Ungodliness is actually a disregard for the revelation. It's a disregard for living the faith, which then leads to being naughty. Um, But it starts with, these things don't matter. And that's kind of the place that that humanity is in relationship with God, as he comes to us and no, you don't matter. And it's not just Christianity that experiences that. So go back in history to that great philosopher Socrates. <laughs> the sentence that was pronounced on him was that he was an atheist. And this is why he drank the hemlock. And when it says that he was an atheist, it doesn't mean that he didn't think that the gods weren't real. It means that he thought they were ridiculous. And in a Greek context, he had a really good point. (laughs) You know, if you read these things, I mean, talk about capricious and lustful and just all around awful. And he called it out. Well, as we deal with the truth of of God's word, God's word is calling out the world and saying, no. Do you remember being told no when you were a kid? You were like, oh, thanks mom and dad, you're so wise. I will be glad to conform myself to your will. We have this in us, and it continues to work in us, and we have to be made aware of it.
1: It seems to me that most people in most cultures are like two-year-old boys. They're standing there with their feet apart and their fists on their hips and saying, you can't tell me what to do.
0: I happen to have three daughters, and I've seen that exact stance now <laughs>
1: Yes. You can't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't matter how long the culture's been there. That's the attitude, and that's a real hard attitude to come against and do something with.
0: It is. Now take that and apply it into the context of our relationship with God, and what it is is actually we are reaching up to take the fruit and say, I will be like God. You, you gather here, and hopefully everybody listening online, wonderful Christian people and you know all of that good stuff. Uh, and if you're a pagan listening online, welcome to, we're glad to have you. Um, uh, but uh, the, the, the whole idea uh, that uh, you know, we, we look at our relationship with God and say, I want to be the authority in my life. I'm not saying that, that, that that's like your everyday mode. But I am saying that that when you scratch the surface deep enough, when you get down to it, that is who we are in relationship to God. And that um, the heart and the core of our relationship with God really comes back to this first commandment issue who is God? And this is one of the reasons that i I like to say sometimes that when you look at god's commands there really is only one and then nine kind of corollaries that are on it you shall have no other gods well what does that look like well you don't misuse his name you worship him you gather for worship you honor your father and your mother You don't kill, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you you don't uh, bear false witness, you you don't covet the the things in people's lives, you don't covet the people and things in people's lives. Well, why not? Because I only have one God. And it it all comes back to that. And this wrath of God issue comes back to that over and over again. He goes on to talk about the unrighteousness of, of, of men. You know, it's the unrighteousness of humanity. Sorry, ladies. Um, and it says that this unrighteousness suppresses the truth. Yeah. I was
1: just thinking, you know, um, kind of in a, a different way, with people who are asleep rather than defined. Know, because there are many people who just kind of float and go with the tide. they're not they don't feel that they're resisting anything right and um, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a difficulty in awakening that because you know, the person is really um, defiant you feel the resistance but there are degrees of unawareness or uh, unintentional asleepness yeah. Well, yeah. And, and not even being aware that this is going on, feeling like you're doing the right thing, you know, mm-hmm. because of, of, the, of the cultural virtue kind of thing. So, you know, I just I feel like
0: sometimes that awareness, that fog, is, is so, it's so hard to break through the fog. Yeah, because you have other voices that are speaking. Saying no, this is right. Yeah. That what you're doing is right.
1: And I, I think particularly, you know, of the kids mm-hmm. that are in our in our culture and our, and that are quote good kids, good kids. Yep.
0: Yeah. And how how difficult it is for uh, that discernment process at a normal age. It is. It is very difficult, and. uh Honestly, this is one of the reasons I think it's so important for us to pray with and for our kids. And, uh, you know, I'm generally pretty good about praying for my kids as part of my devotions, but I'm not always very good about praying with my kids. And uh, this is one of the things that, for me, has been a real blessing with our our Lenten practice, you know, with the, the hymnals. You know, we trot them out and they sit down and they go through it and uh, it, that for me has been a huge blessing in, in this process, you know, and, and in this devotional habit it's, you know, I think has been really cool. Um, but yeah, we need to pray for our kids because there are voices in their lives. We need to pray for ourselves, right? And we do, I mean, we pray deliver us from evil, right? You know, when, when it says that, we explain that, is uh, that God would protect us from all dangers of body and soul. And, and, and I always love to tag on at the end that it, that it mentions it, that God would give us a blessed end. Because this life is not the goal. The goal is that we would be reconciled to our Father uh, through Jesus. So, when it says it suppresses the truth, there there are some uh, important spiritual aspects to this, because we worship a God who says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All things true find their truth in Jesus. Did did any of you read the, the Chronicles of Narnia? so there is this scene in um, in the last battle. the last battle is the one they go into the stable and they find that it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside you know, i don 't know if that's where you know the creators of Doctor Who got the idea or not, but uh, you know they come in and and they 're actually coming into aslan 's country they 're coming into heaven and the, and the, the, it's always further up and further in further up and further in and there is this guy who on the outside of the stable was one of their enemies from this foreign country. And he's in there, and his name is Emeth. Emeth in Hebrew means truth. And one of the things it talks about is that all things true belong to God. And there's a little bit of maybe issue with some of the theology in terms of Emeth being there in heaven. Uh, as this outsider uh, who may or may not have had faith in God, uh, but, uh, um, but this idea that everything true belongs to God. That God created this world in a, in a way that, that is true and comes back to him. There are 21 references to truth in the Gospel of John. More than any uh, uh, other book In the New Testament. It all connects to Jesus. And this is part of our struggle today as we go through the world. It it takes us right to Jesus' trial before Pilate, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, when Pilate probably said words that sounded something like, quid es veritas? What is truth? There's some debate as to whether uh, Pilate says that in a, in a real soul-searching kind of way, or whether it's a dismissive thing. Bah, what is truth? Who determines reality? And, and I think that this, this is something that, that we're finding ourselves having difficulty with today. You know, I look out here and you are all wearing masks. And there are people who would say, well, why are you doing that? Because obviously it it doesn't work because, you know, can you smell bread baking while you're wearing the mask? Because that means that something's coming through it. They don't usually use the bread baking. They usually use something disgusting. Um, But uh, um, what is true? In, in, in regards to the government, there are all of all kinds of different things that we look at and people of goodwill, even our brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking to align themselves to God's word will look at the way that we do things and come to a different conclusion about what is true in all of these different circumstances and I think that this is something that uh, I think this is something we're becoming more divided on in our culture. The question of who decides reality. And we're gonna get into this, uh, hopefully not too much, but uh, the whole idea of gender. What is true? When it says that God created us male and female. Well, what's true about the different ways that gets expressed in this world? And then what does that mean? And I think there are a lot of different voices telling us different things. And people will accept different authorities on these things. Because there isn't just one voice speaking in this world, And that has to be revealed. That has to be made known. The wrath of God is being made known, revealed in this generation. So as Paul examines human unrighteousness, where does he begin? He begins with our relationship with God as our creator. He says there is a natural knowledge of God. Psalm 19, the the whole first third of the psalm is the stars declare the the handiworks of the Lord. And and just this whole idea is that everywhere you look in creation, it cries out, God. And I wanna be careful with that because I think that when you look at creation, you can come to some very different conclusions about what this God is like. But what God says is that you really should not be able to look at creation and think there is no God. That all of this is just a happy accident. And the fact that we can do that speaks to the hardening and the darkening of our hearts. He says that there is a natural knowledge from dealing with creation, that there is a creator. Now, notice that I said that, that we can come to that there is a creator. That doesn't mean that just by recognizing that there's a creator that, that, uh, that is Jesus. We still, that's another revelation on top of, uh, of what we should know naturally. And he says this leaves us without an excuse. And if you're ever in, uh, well, Depending how you want to look at it, if you're ever bored for an hour and a half, or you want uh, some kind of uh, nerdy entertainment for an hour and a half, there's a movie called Expelled with Ben Stein. Uh, ben Stein, for those of you who are somewhere in my generation, Bueller, 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 and he, he did this movie where he interviewed university professors on the issue of intelligent design. The idea that there is a creator. And how that is rejected in in a lot of the university systems. And that by holding strongly to that, that some people become blackballed. And uh, um, it's an interesting take on it. So if you haven't seen it, I I think it's worth the time. What's it called? Expelled. It says they knew God. Um, well, what about the atheists? Do the atheists know God? As I think about that, there's a great scene in the Brothers Karamazov. Um, truth in advertising, I have not read the Brothers Karamazov. This is secondhand. That being said, I don't know that many people ever read the whole book, because it's awful. Um, no, it's actually brilliant, but I mean, it's, it's just so, Russian literature is so hard. Everybody's got like five names. I can't keep track of it. You need somebody to guide you through it. And the humor is so weird. Um, anyhow, um, two brothers. One's a Christian, the other's an atheist. The Christian asks the atheist brother, what, don't you ever think about God? And the atheist brother responds, I am an atheist. I only think about God. He's obsessed to say there is no God. It, it, because he deals with a world that is always crying out God, whether it's his brother as a Christian or this reality of the creation, which he may or may not recognize. There's always this pressure to say, there is, and you should know this. And it's led to I love these words, futility and darkening. You know, as the world gets darker, it's harder and harder to see. But also at the same time, as the world gets darker, those of us who are the light of the world because we have Jesus' light in us can shine all the more brightly. So we shouldn't take this as a... uh, a fearful thing, but to recognize where we are in relationship with God, in relationship with the world. And it says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. So back to the first commandment, who is your God? And the constant, this is the constant issue with the Israelite people. And it continues with us. It continues in our generation. And recognizing the wrath of God and the righteousness of God is part of this whole experience of who God is and how we relate to him. Questions? Comments? Okay. 24 and 25, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. So let me expand on the translation a little bit. When it says the the lust, it's the eager desires and the passions of their hearts. I thought it was interesting, the word that's translated impurity is translated, could also be translated as uncleanness. That has some really important biblical concepts behind it, to be unclean. Um, Because you could be doing a lot of things right in your life, but still be unclean, meaning you don't, you, you can't come into God's presence. And this idea of dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, it literally means to treat your body shamefully. It says they exchanged the truth for a lie. They worshipped. They showed reverence for the creature instead of the creator. Matthew 10, verse 28 Jesus, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should fear love and trust in God above all things, right? And when we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we are giving that fear to something that is created rather than to the the creator. And Jesus warns about this. He says, you know, he recognizes we're gonna fear things in this life. We're gonna give reverence to things in this life. There is going to be a righteousness that is spoken of. There will be pressure from people to conform to certain standards, a certain civic righteousness. He says, do not fear this Fear the one that has real authority. The one, th- this, is, this, is, this is a penultimate authority. And I'm not saying that it's fun to run into penultimate authority. You know, people get tortured. People are injured. People are harmed badly by this penultimate authority. But there is another authority, this godly authority, that says no matter what happens here, everything is going to be okay. Because even if they kill you, there is a resurrection. And he says, which one, where should you put your your, your reverence? Where should you put your, your fear? And so we become fixated on the created, and we fear, love, and trust in the created instead of, in the, uh, in, instead of the creator. And I don't want to pick up here uh, next week, but I'm going to. Because it's part of what we need to talk about with this book, because there is an authority that's at work in this world that is contrary to God's will. And so next week, I guess we pick up with verses 26 and 27. Anything before we wrap up? Becca said, please put the tables away and leave about 20 chairs out. Becca said, please put the chairs away tables away and away, and leave 20 chairs out. Got that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed your righteousness. And Lord, as we consider how you have revealed your wrath, we pray that you would help us to live in faithfulness to you, trusting in your forgiveness and your salvation, experiencing your love and mercy that pushes back against that wrath and brings us back into a right relationship with you. But that's coming later in Romans. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.